Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Roger Williams, author of Frederick Watts and the Founding of Penn State. Roger Williams is the author of Frederick Watts and the Founding of Penn State. When did Frederick Watts live? He lived a very long life uh, in the 19th century. He was born in 1801 and he died in 1889. So he lived to be 88 years old. Um, rather a long life for the 19th century. Uh, what kind of a family did he grow up in? Well, he had um, quite a distinguished pedigree, if you will. Both grandfathers on his father's and mother's side were officers in the Revolutionary War. His mother, um, his mother's father, Henry Miller, was in fact in charge of U.S. troops during the Battle of Baltimore in the War of 1812. And his, uh, his father was David Watts, who was the son of Frederick Watts, named also like the son. Uh, Frederick Watts was a Welshman. He emigrated to America in 1760, originally settling in Chester County, then moving up close to the confluence of the Juniata and Susquehanna rivers. And there he bought a very large tract of land from the Penn family. And on that land, his son David was born in 1764. And what's interesting to me is when one travels Route 322 near Clark's Ferry, you see signs for the so-called Watts exit along 322. And that exit actually refers to the township of Watts. There's no town there, just a township. But the township was in fact named for David Watts. Uh, that area was all part of Cumberland County. And Cumberland County was of course the second county founded west of the Susquehanna River and it basically extended to the whole entirety of Pennsylvania all the way to the, to the west. Well, where did he grow up? Watts himself grew up in the town of Carlisle. That was his lifelong home. That's where his father, David, practiced law. Uh, David Watts, the father, uh, was a graduate of the first class of Dickinson College in 1787 and became a lawyer, actually, of great renown. And uh, so Frederick grew up in Carlisle. He was there uh, during his entire youth. He entered Dickinson College when he was 14 years old. This was the year 1815. Uh, the problem was, in 1816, a year later, Dickinson shut down for five years. So Frederick never got a baccalaureate degree, per se. But of course, he was always considered an alumnus of the college, class of 1819. David uh, died in that same year, 1819. And what happened was that Frederick traveled to the home of an uncle, William Miles, in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, William was a, uh, a man of affairs, one of these great 19th century men of affairs who did just about everything. He was a lawyer, he was a miller, 
He was a farmer. Uh, he was a developer. But Frederick went there to read law with him and was there for two years. And something unusual and unexpected happened. There, uh, on the farm of William Miles, Frederick fell in love with agriculture and farm life. And thus began the development of his lifelong interest, his greatest interest, which was agriculture, and especially agricultural improvement, and especially doing things to advance the social, economic, and political standing of the American farmer or the Pennsylvania farmer. You mentioned that he started attending Dickinson when he was 14. Mm -hmm. Was that normal for that time period, for people to be that young and going to college? Yeah, actually it was. Uh, young men, uh, especially, uh, started in their teens when the uh, Farmers High School opened for instruction, fast forward, uh, to 1859, the minimal age for admission was set at 16. So it was not at all unusual for bright boys to start at 14, 15, 16. Now, did he have a formal education before that? Uh, typical schooling, uh, I guess, in the academy, uh, the academies of Carlisle, or the common schools. So was it to become a lawyer at that time, you mentioned that he was reading the law with, uh, with yeah. William. Is that how lawyers were trained, or were there law schools at that point? Uh, not many law schools at all. Most lawyers served an apprenticeship. It was called reading law. Uh, Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. He read law. So basically, you attached yourself to an attorney. You read and studied and did, you know, one-on-one -on -one tutorials uh, with these three people. And then, of course, you were required to take a bar examination. So. Um, Frederick did that. He passed. Uh, when he returned from Erie in 1821 to Carlisle, he read law with uh, Andrew Carruthers for a couple of years, and he took the bar, the county bar examination, and passed in 1824 and was admitted to practice in Cumberland County. Did he specialize in a particular type of law, or at that time was it more general? I think it was more general at that time. You did just about everything that needed to be done in, uh, in, in legal terms. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what kind of a career did he have? Was he a prominent lawyer in his community? Uh, he was. Uh, right out of the gates, he established a large and lucrative law practice. He was regarded, and this isn't me, this is, this is the testimony of his contemporaries. Uh, he was uh, brilliant. He was very smart, as was his father. Uh, very bright, um, sterling reputation, a man of high integrity. And he built a practice uh, very quickly, did all kinds of uh, legal casework, but he also, and this is what's in, very interesting to me, he also became the court, the, the reporter for the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. This is in addition to a very large and demanding law practice. And over the course of 15 years, from 1829 when he started doing this to 1844, he produced, sometimes with partners, as often as not without a partner, uh, as a reporter for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, he produced 22 volumes, more than 11,000 handwritten words. Uh, this was at a time where there were no typewriters, um, no modern dictation tools or anything of that sort. So basically what you had to do was to write a summation, if you will, of the major points of a particular S Supreme Court case. Um, there were times when uh, he, he would be working and sleeping in his law office, maybe three hours a night, to get this 
reporting done, these volumes done, in addition to practicing law. And I'm told he also, when he started this, was not a very legible writer. So he had to really teach himself how to uh, uh, retrain himself so that he could write in readable cursive. Did his law practice, uh, was it, did it provide him with a, a very good living for his family? It did, it did. He, uh, he became quite affluent over the course of his life. And he had other interests as well. Now, a, a big part of your book, and you mentioned earlier about his passion for agriculture. Yeah. Uh, once, he, once he was spurred to be interested in agriculture, how did he pursue that given that he had a career as a lawyer? Well, he was a man of high energy, obviously. And uh, uh, I think what happened was uh, shortly after, about five years after, he, uh, he got to, uh, he, he began practicing law. He bought a farm uh, in Carlisle, a couple miles out of town, on the Connor de Gwinnett Creek. And there he, uh, he built a barn that was a rather innovative barn for the time. And it was reputed to be the largest barn at the time in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's still there, and it's still part of a practicing farm. But what was unusual about it was that most Pennsylvania barns at that time had a cupola on their roof, and that was used to vent uh, the, uh, the hot, moist stream of air that hay produced. And it often served as a conduit for electrical storms, lightning. What uh, Watts did, and this is kind of the beginning of as many kinds of farming innovations that he produced throughout his life, uh, what happened was that he decided to forego the cupola and instead create vents in the eaves of the roof so that the hot, moist air escaped in a more diffuse fashion and did not provide that conduit uh, to lightning. So that was uh, probably his first um, and one of his best known innovations. Now, in the book, you re refer to him as a gentleman farmer. What did mm -hmm. that mean in that time period? Well, there were a lot of gentlemen farmers. These were men's of uh, means, typically. Uh, it basically meant that farming was not uh, the way in which they had to eke out uh, a living. They did this for intellectual um, curiosity. Uh, they did this in an altruistic kind of fashion to create innovations and advances that would benefit the farming community. Uh, it was an avocation. It was a hobby. And um, there were uh, many men, mainly of the patrician class, if you will, who uh, were gentlemen farmers, and Watts was certainly that. Uh, but he, you know, he was always looking to innovate. Um, barn design and farm design were his passions, and his main concern there was to create efficient models of barn and farm designs so that farming became a little bit easier, you know, creating models, if you will, for uh, farmers to emulate. So did the, the gentlemen farmers, were they a community? Did they interact with each other? Uh, they did, they did. Uh, probably uh, the first best example of that would have been the uh, Philadelphia Society for Promoting Agriculture. This was one of the first early scientific organizations in America, centered in Philadelphia. And many of the men who were members of this were of the patrician class. They were. They were uh, a couple of signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, some men who were at the Constitutional Convention for the United States of America, physicians, merchants, uh, but all with an abiding interest in agricultural improvement. And so uh, 
This gives you an example of uh, the kind of men who formed the society. The uh, historian of Pennsylvania agriculture, uh, a gentleman named Stevenson Fletcher, who wrote a monumental history of Pennsylvania agriculture and country life back in the 1950s, said that most of the scientific advances, such as they were in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century, were due to the work of gentlemen farmers. The Philadelphia Society, just to give you two, example, uh, two examples of their work, uh, looked at the problem presented by the so-called Hessian fly. This was an insect pest, an insect thought to have been imported to America through the saddlebags of Hessian soldiers in the Revolution, and it spread. And uh, they created huge destruction, uh, de destruction, if you will, to the annual wheat crop. Pennsylvania was the country's leading wheat-producing state. And so they uh, uh, studied the Hessian fly, and uh, the other problem they took on was soil exhaustion. And they came up with uh, uh, a methodology that basically promoted crop rotation, promoted the use of red clover mixed in with this, and the increased use of manure to mitigate the uh, degradation of the soil uh, that would be used without any kind of fertilizer year after year after year. So that's an example of gentlemen farmers, if you will, studying the problems of American agriculture. And you mentioned the Philadelphia Society. Mm -hmm. There was also a state-level agricultural yeah. society. What was Watts's role in, in the creation of that? Sure. Well, it was the Philadelphia Society for, for Promoting Agriculture that basically got things going. In May of 1850, they issued uh, a plea to the Pennsylvania farming community to begin a state agricultural society. Pennsylvania was lagging a little bit. Neighboring states had formed state agricultural societies, New York, Ohio, uh, Virginia, Maryland, and the thought was, we need to get things moving in Pennsylvania. And so they issued a call. And in uh, January, this is about nine months later, eight months later, January of 1851, uh, the State Agricultural Society came together and formed itself into a legitimate organization. And at the same time, they elected Frederick Watts as president, founding president of the Pennsylvania State Agricultural Society. So as president, was he just a caretaker administrator, or was he somebody who had vision and was driving things forward? Uh, exactly. He did have vision, and he did drive things forward. Uh, this was an agricultural society that, in its first year, took on the task of generating a large membership. Uh, you know, it's one thing to form a state society, but then you need members who are going to be part of it and support it. So in that first year, they were able to generate a membership of 2,000. But more to the point, what they really wanted to do was to state, start organizing state fairs, agricultural exhibitions. And so they put together uh, the very first fair in Harrisburg, right here in this area. And lo and behold, it attracted about 20,000 people. It was deemed a great success. And this was a way of bringing the farming community t together so that they could see themselves as a kind of self-conscious community, and a community that was very large. You've got to keep in mind that 
circa 1850, in the 1850s, you know, Pennsylvania was 85% rural, 85% farming, if you will, related to agriculture. So basically agriculture at this time was an invisible giant. And Watts' concern was that, you know, legislative bodies, whether it was the Pennsylvania General Assembly, whether it was the U.S. Congress, had issued numerous acts, if you will, designed to benefit other sectors of society, manufacturing, uh, transportation, so on and so forth. And his concern was that the farming community in Pennsylvania needed to pull together and to begin agitating and advocating for legislation that would benefit their concerns. So uh, putting together state fairs was a great way to get people talking to each other, seeing each other, and uh, starting to advocate for legislation that would serve their own interests as farmers. So to kind of follow on that political aspect of it, what, what type of politics did Watts adhere to? Well, Watts was a Whig. What's a Whig? This was a political party that came out of the 1830s, uh, largely in response to Andrew Jackson and his dissolution of the uh, Second Bank of America. Jackson did not like a large central bank. But uh, the Whigs were a party, basically, that felt you, that you needed a strong federal government if you wanted to build the country up. So they would be in favor of a strong centralized financial system, if you will, a uh, strong tra transportation system and infrastructure. We're talking about canals, roads, turnpikes, in, uh, to be built in ways that would tie the country together and advance the economy and allow for more internal trade. Uh, they favored public education. They really wanted to build the country up. And so they were quite the progressive party at the time. They lasted until about the, uh, the mid-1850s. Their great national champions were Henry Clay, the great senator of Missouri, the great compromiser, if you will, and uh, Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. And when these two senatorial giants died in the early 1850s, the Whig Party started to unravel a bit, and it basically morphed into, more or less, the modern Republican Party. Now, as this uh, political views of trying to build roads and build out infrastructure, uh, Frederick Watts would become a key figure in advocating for the, the school that would become Penn State. Yes. Was building schools, was that part of this larger vision of society, too? It is. It is. Uh, public education, um, certainly a large part of the Whig agenda. Um, the common school movement, which was basically a movement to create free public education at what we would call the primary level today, uh, swept across the northeastern U.S. in the 1830s and 1840s. But uh, the movement to create agricultural colleges is also part and parcel of this. Again, you have to look at American higher education in the 19th century. Um, by about the year 1860, there were maybe 200, 210 colleges in this country. Most all of them were private and denominational. That is, they had a religious tie to a uh, religious denomination, be it Methodist or Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian, and most all of them were led by a minister. 
the, the whole concept of an agricultural college was quite um, radical for the time because it was designed to serve a class of people that had been, at least in Watts's view, overlooked by American society. And the hope was that uh, using scientific agriculture, basing these colleges on science, and providing a more practical form of education, you would be able to benefit the farming class across Pennsylvania and throughout the country. Now, one of the terms you use in the book is literary college, often in quotes. Yes. Uh, what, what did that mean to the people at the time? A literary college would be what we call today a liberal arts college, pretty much, essentially. Uh, the curriculum was based on Latin and Greek, primarily. Uh, languages, literature, uh, the humanities, as we would call them today, uh, but not much science. There were, in the 19th century, um, maybe 300 practicing scientists up through about the early 1850s, most of them, not all, but most of them attached to literary colleges. But they were not really in great position. This is, you know, we're talking faculties of maybe four, five, six people. They were not in great position to really advance science, if you will. They manned lonely outposts. They were overwhelmed with the concerns of uh, student discipline and teaching. Uh, hard to communicate with each other. Almost impossible to do uh, research. And so uh, what you needed were institutions that more or less were devoted to the science of agriculture, which was coming into, uh, uh, becoming part of a movement into the late 1840s and especially got ahead of steam going in the 1850s. Now did Frederick Watts, uh, was he alone in his desire to create an agricultural college or was it part of the society that he was involved in? It was part of the larger society that he was involved in. Certainly he was a proponent, but there were like-minded men in Pennsylvania, uh, in the Pennsylvania society, uh, agricultural society, in the Philadelphia society. So yeah, this was part of a larger movement uh, to really uh, promote science, to make agricultural much more scientific, and to, through the introduction of science, make American agriculture much more productive. Now, what we know today as Penn State University would begin as the Farmers High School. It would. Uh, how, how, did, how did it go from idea, Frederick Watson and others have an idea, to actually establishing the school? Well, Watts's uh, idea, uh, he really took the lead in this in that he uh, wrote the original act to charter the Farmers High School of Pennsylvania, so-called, uh, as early as 1853. And in fact, uh, the act that he introduced uh, was um, basically looked at by the House and Senate, but it did not go through because it was introduced too late in the legislative session. And so you circle up in about eight months into early 1854, uh, Watts again wrote the basis of an act to introduce the Farmers High School and it was acted upon rather quickly. It went through the House and Senate, and in April of 1854, it was signed by Governor William Bigler. End of story, right? No, just the beginning, because uh, the act as it was passed, you know, there are, it was always amended, it provided for no appropriation whatsoever, no money. And it also specified that the school was to have 60-plus trustees, 
one from each Pennsylvania county. So you can imagine what it would have been like in 1854 to try to pull 60 people together at one time and in one place to get any business done. So uh, basically the uh, Pennsylvania um, Society went back, met, and thought that what we have to do is throw out this act, induce the legislature to throw this act away and get a new charter with uh, money in it and a much smaller number of trustees. So that happened in the winter of 1855. The, uh, the act that was passed and signed by Governor James Pollock on February 22, 1855, specified only 13 trustees, much smaller. You can get something done with 13 people as opposed to 60. But it still provided no money for the institution. Nonetheless, what happened was that this same act specified that the trustees had to get together in Harrisburg in June of 1855 and form a committee to start selecting a site for the new school. How did they go about selecting that site? We know today that it's in, it's in Center County, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but how did it end up there? Um, a very interesting story. Uh, at the same time, during the, uh, the spring of 1855, the call went out uh, for interested counties and individuals to submit proposals for citing this new Farmers High School of Pennsylvania. And so these proposals came in. The site selection committee was formed uh, the second Sunday in June here in Harrisburg, and the three people on it were Frederick Watts, of course, Alfred Elwin, who was on the Board of Trustees, he was a, an agriculturalist and a physician from the Philadelphia area, and the governor of the state, James Pollock. So these were the three-person, this was a three-person committee charged with going out and looking at the sites that had been uh, submitted as proposals. Now, can you imagine the governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania actually heading up a committee to go out and look at sites for citing an agricultural college? But that was James Pollock, and he was also a Whig, I might add. So they met, and uh, the first site they visited was uh, Center County. Uh, the lands of General James Irvin at Center Furnace, an iron furnace, producing furnace. Um, and they met there on June 26th, 1855. Uh, the Center County Agricultural Society had a huge outpouring of individuals there to greet the committee. There was a sumptuous banquet uh, put on at uh, Center Furnace Mansion. So they met there. They looked over the lands that General James Irvin was offering, and uh, then they left and went to Erie and looked at the lands of James Miles. Now, interestingly, James Miles was a trustee of the university, of the, I'm sorry, of the college, but he was the son of William Miles. That was the uncle of Frederick Watts, and you'll recall that that was the farm where Frederick Watts read law back in 1819, 1820. Uh, after visiting the lands in Erie, they then went to Allegheny County and looked at a proposal that was offered there. And then uh, the fourth site they visited was in Altoona, near Altoona in Blair County, um, offered by the Ironmaster Elias Baker. 
So they went back, they looked at the proposals, but there were more coming in. Long story short, uh, others had come in from Huntington County, from Union County, from uh, Franklin County, and uh, kind of an oral offer from Simon Cameron of Dauphin County. So they met in Harrisburg, which is where the trustees met, typically, um, in September of 1855. And there was some back and forth. Watts introduced the motion for the Center County site. But there was another motion for the Blair County site and another motion for the Allegheny site. They were voted down. So Watts, Frederick Watts said, well, maybe we need to go back to the drawing board. Maybe we need a new committee of the board to go out and take a look at all these sites again and come back. But that motion was defeated too. Long story short, finally, Watts's motion for the Center County site was accepted. And the rest is history, except that it really wasn't. There's a lot more to the story. What, what would that area have looked like at the time? Uh, was it was the service well by roads, by railroads? What, what was it like? Uh, it was remote. It was remote, but uh, uh, Centric County, uh, mainly agricultural at the time, uh, no rail service to the Farmers High School, to the center um, furnace, if you will. So just uh, dirt rides then, or, or dirt roads. The nearest, the nearest uh, train station would have been at Spruce Creek on the Pennsylvania Railroad main line. And from there you would take a buggy or a coach 22 miles to the, to the site of uh, what became the Farmers High School. So very remote, agricultural certainly, uh, good farmland, but it was also the site of what I call a hidden industry, which was the uh, iron industry. You got to keep in mind that uh, the iron that was produced in central Pennsylvania at the time, we're talking the 1840s into the 1850s, was the best grade of iron you could find in the country at the time. It was so-called Juniata iron, a very high grade of iron ore. and. Central Pennsylvania gave rise to a lot of iron furnaces and forges. And Center County, Blair County, Huntington County, Clinton County, Mifflin County, these five counties were really the heart of the uh, Pennsylvania iron industry, which was the world's most productive at the time. So, uh, so you had industry there, but you also, also had, of course, uh, lots, of, lots of farms, small villages, hamlets, no real town such as State College, that came much later. So once they selected a location and got started uh, building the school, mm -hmm. uh, they had to find somebody to run it. Who did they find? Uh, well, initially, they hired a man named William Waring, W-A-R-I-N-G. This is a name that should be familiar to Pennsylvanians because this man was the grandfather of Fred Waring, of Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, a famous choral group that basically uh, back in the late 40s and 50s became the uh, most popular choral group in America because they were the first to be on television. Well, William Waring was an orchardist. He was uh, a horticulturalist, a fruit grower. He wrote a handbook on uh, fruit, if you will. Uh, he wrote a column on horticulture for the New York Tribune. He lived in Center County and the board appointed him as kind of superintendent of grounds to get the farm laid out and up and running, to get things planted, if you will, basically to get things underway. At the same time, uh, Watts hired a construction firm, Turner and Natcher, from Carlisle, uh, 
to build what was called the college building for $55,000. But the first, the first building that went up on site, this is in 1856, was a large barn for the college. And the barn was designed by Frederick Watts. Uh, the college building was quite another proposition. Uh, ground was broken in the summer of 1856 for this and work started. And basically by the summer of 57, a year later, the west wing of the building was up three stories. And long story short, um, construction continued. But a year later in 1858, the, con the contractors uh, were on the verge of bankruptcy, and so work stopped on the, uh, on the building. Part of the problem was that there was this event in 1857, starting in the fall, called the Panic of 1857, an economic depression, which uh, uh, decimated the Pennsylvania iron industry and basically became uh, a pretty severe economic depression across the country. And so that slowed things down. It caused bankruptcies. It posed a lot of problems. Long story short, they were able to hire a contractor to complete the college building over the remaining months of 1858 and get it ready for occupancy for students in February of 1859. So there's a lot more to the story. But basically, uh, they were able to get the building up one-third finished. They had four faculty members hired, but no president yet. Um, and uh, they were in debt, but they had also received, in 1857, finally, a $25,000 appropriation from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, from the state legislature. And that enabled them to finance the rest of the building, if you will. Uh, one of the key early figures was Evan Pugh. Who was he? Uh, Evan Pugh was the founding president, the first president of the Farmers High School. He was uh, a Pennsylvanian, a Chester County native, an uh, extremely bright boy and man who, in his early 20s, left Chester County, where he had a very uh, successful academy that he ran, went to Germany uh, for s and, uh, and England, was gone six years, obtained his Ph.D., in chemistry from the University of Göttingen in Germany. Uh, went over to the Rothamsted Experiment Station in England and there conducted an experiment that attracted international attention because it solved a basic problem that had created a kind of raging con uh, scientific controversy, which was how do plants assimilate nitrogen from the air or from the soil? And what Pew was able to uh, confirm was that basically it happens from the soil. So. Uh, here was a man with a Ph.D., very unusual for the time, a Pennsylvanian, uh, with an, actually an international reputation, if you will, in Europe for what he had done in England. And this uh, experiment that he conducted successfully became basically the foundation for the modern ammonium nitrate fertilizer industry. So. Watts is aware, and the trustees are aware of Evan Pugh. Evan Pugh wants to come back because his goal now, and these are his words, this is his crisp vision, is to develop upon the soil of Pennsylvania the best agricultural college in the world for the agricultural student of America. So a pretty firm goal. Remarkably, 
he was able to do this in just four and a half years, in the midst of the greatest crisis in American history, the Civil War. So we can go, I can tell you more about <laughs> Pew, but uh, uh, I hold him in such high regard. He was such an unusual, brilliant man who knew how to get things done. How did Pew's vision of the school match up with Watts's vision of the school? Well, for Pew, basically he envisioned the Farmers High School as a scientific institution. There were not many scientific institutions or institutions of higher learning in America at this time, uh, maybe 10 or so. But his vision was we need to teach science. The problem with agriculture is uh, it's not underpinned by scientific practice. And the science was developing at the time. It wasn't a, a finite, confirmed body of work. Science, as you know, is always evolving. Uh, but he thought that the students who came there really needed to be not practicing scientists per se, but they needed to be conversant with the science of the time and able to work with science as it develops over the rest of their lives. And the hope was that the graduates would go out and be as literate as they could be in scientific agricultural practice and so inform the rest of the Pennsylvania agricultural community. Uh, Watts was also a, certainly a proponent of science, but he had a more practical sense of what the educational curriculum needed to be. So there was a, I, I wouldn't say there was tension between the two, but they had slightly differing visions for the Farmers High School. Now, the school was called a high school and not a college? It uh, was. Why? why? What's the... Well, this was the uh, thinking of the Pennsylvania um, State Agricultural Society. Uh, the word college, now again, we're talking about a lot of literary institutions, little arts colleges, small institutions across uh, Pennsylvania and America in the first half of the 19th century. Um, the thought was among the farming community, they looked at colleges with suspicion, where men went, young men, and uh, they basically read books, uh, learned the dead languages, if you will, and uh, began to develop habits of uh, laziness and a disdain for manual labor. They were gentlemen, if you will. So uh, to mollify the farming community, they decided that the Farmers High School was probably a better term of art to use than college, which again conjured up images of an institution where uh, young men uh, uh, gained habits of idleness. Now the name would be changed to it college. Uh, what, yeah. what was behind that? Well, Pew never liked the name Farmers High School. And so uh, the name was changed in 1862, in May of 1862, to the Agri Agricultural College of Pennsylvania. Pew always, it was a collegiate institution. Even though it was called the Farmers High School, right out of the gates, it was designed to offer baccalaureate degrees. So it was never uh, what we would call today a high school curriculum. It was always a, uh, a college curriculum. And so, Pew decided to change the name. He also wanted to make sure it was named appropriately because the um, Morrill Act of 1862 was gathering a head of steam uh, in Congress in Washington. And he wanted to make sure that the college was named uh, in such a way that it would be in position to be the logical designate, uh, designated institution for the um, Morrill Act. So uh, talk a little bit more about the Morrill Land Grant Act. Yeah. What, what would it do and what did it mean for the Agricultural College? 
Well, it was a revolutionary act. Um, this was, uh, now consider, the, you're in the depths of the American Civil War. And so uh, Congress, such as it is, is entirely northern and western. There are no representatives from the, from the 11 states of the Confederacy. And so these are very progressive people. So the act, um, which was promulgated by Senator Justin, or representative at the time, Justin Morrill of Vermont, was basically designed to establish colleges. This, they would be funded by an appropriation of land from Congress to every state based on the population of that state. And the land was to be sold and the proceeds used to establish an endowment. The earned income from that endowment was designed to establish at least one college where the leading object would be without excluding scientific or classical studies and including military tactics uh, to build at least one college that would be uh, dedicated to agriculture and the mechanic arts. Uh, to be taught in a manner prescribed by the state legislatures of each state uh, in order to promote what was called the, uh, the several pursuits and, and professions of life for the industrial classes. So the act distributed basically 17.4 million acres of land. It was sold off over time. And again, the proceeds were used to establish an endowment to fund these institutions. In most cases, the endowment did not provide a sufficient amount of funding. That's another story, but that's the idea behind it. And basically, what this does was to establish a precedent, if you will, for getting the federal government involved in higher American higher education. So once the, the act is passed and uh, the money is available, was the agricultural college the natural or leading uh, source for this money or the money would go there or were there competitors? Well, there were, but uh, first of all, the act required the states to accept it. The state legislatures had to accept the terms of the Morrill Act. And so uh, it took uh, about eight months uh, where Pew and Watts and the Pennsylvania agricultural community needed to work with the Pennsylvania legislature to ensure that they were able to understand and accept the terms of the act. That happened on April 1st, 1863, when Governor Andrew Curtin signed the act. And it did designate the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania as the beneficiary of the act. But there was an ominous clause in the legislature's act. So it designated the Agricultural College of Penn State until otherwise ordered by the legislature. So. That was a proviso that uh, basically encouraged other colleges in Pennsylvania through their representatives to vie for a piece of the act after it had been accepted by the legislature. And that happened. Now, Evan Pugh would die after a few years uh, as president. Uh, what was, how, why did he die young? Uh, well, so let's go to... Uh, Let's go to April 1, 1863. So this is kind of the high watermark for the, far, for the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania and Evan Pugh. Consider, the college had lobbied successfully with others 
for the Morrill Act, this piece of seminal federal legislation. The act had been accepted by the Pennsylvania legislature, and Pew was able to grow enrollments at the college in the midst of the Civil War. You know, men and money were going to the war, but he was able to generate increases in enrollment up to, in 1863, 142. By that time, it had become far and away the most successful and the largest agricultural college in the United States. There weren't that many, but Pew had already established this college as the uh, national model. Okay, things then begin to unravel. In July of 18, June of 1863, Pew and his fiancee are injured in a buggy accident in Belfont, where the buggy is thrown into a creek. Um, Pew's fiancee almost drowns. He rescues her. He breaks his arm in the process. And you can imagine what medicine was like in Centre County in 1863 for severely broken bones. But Pew went back to the college and uh, continued to lead it. At the same time, uh, the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, is coming up, uh, invading uh, the Keystone State, if you will. And the college nearly empties out of students because the governor, uh, buttressing Lincoln's call for volunteers, uh, calls for Pennsylvanians to defend native soil, if you will. So that happens. Uh, fortunately, uh, the Confederate Army is rebuffed at Gettysburg. After the battle, Pew goes back to the college and then goes to Philadelphia to uh, attend to, uh, to basically solicit the services of one of the best physicians at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, who tells him, you've got to be very still. You've got to be immobile, essentially. So Pew is gone for about 10 weeks or so. He comes back in October. Uh, at, the, at that time, there is uh, word on the street, if you will, of other colleges that are wanting to gain a piece of this uh, Moral Act fund. So going to January 1864, basically um, Allegheny College in Meadville has really lobbied hard to gain a piece of the Moral Act. Uh, Pew issues a grand manifesto, basically the first plan in this country for the ways in which these Moral Act colleges, these land-grant colleges, needed to be organized and funded. Nonetheless, there's competition now in the General Assembly, and there's a bill that comes forth that's designed to split the Moral Land-Grant Fund. Uh, the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania is one of the institutions. Allegheny College, whom we, which we just mentioned. Pennsylvania College of Gettysburg, which is Gettysburg College. The uh, Western University of Pennsylvania, which we now know as Pitt. Um, the University at Lewisburg, which we now know as Bucknell. And the uh, Polytechnic College of Pennsylvania, which has since faded from the scene. Long story short, um, the act is basically um, put on hold because the, the legislative session ends at the end of April, beginning of May. However, Evan Pugh, uh, the effects of the broken arm, the stress of the job, and he manages somehow to contract typhoid fever at the end of April. Uh, he goes into a coma and he dies on April 29th. The act does not go through, so for the time being, uh, the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania retains its status as the sole 
beneficiary of the land grant fund. Now, after Evan Pugh dies, uh, there's a long period up until the, the person you call the second founder of Penn State, uh, George yeah. Atherton. Uh, during that period, there are a number of presidents that come and go. Yes. Uh, what was happening at the school as these presidents were, were moving through? Wow. Uh, well, what's happening is that the institution is going to slide into an era of gift, of, of drift, an era of drift. And what happens is that there are five presidents between Evan Pugh, who dies in 1864, and George Atherton, the second founder, who becomes president in 1882. So you have this nearly 18-year period of a retrogression, if you will, during which the school moves farther away from its land-grant mission. It basically pretty much abandons any kind of emphasis on agriculture. It, it does nothing to really introduce the engineering disciplines, which are required by the Morrill Act. And it devolves into what I call a backwoods classical college, a literary institution. Not much different than the 30 or so liberal arts colleges across the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, the presidents that were hired were men who were unsuited to the task of moving a nascent scientific institution forward along the terms that the Morrill Act dictated, if you will. So. We can go into more detail uh, about this, but one of the points I make in the book is that it wasn't only the presidents who uh, retained some responsibility for this retrograde motion, if you will. They were appointed by Frederick Watts in the Board of Trustees, and so he too holds some culpability for hiring men unsuited to the task of moving the institution forward as a new land-grant college. When were women first admitted as students? Women were first admitted as students in 1871. And this came about with the administration of James Calder, who was a Harrisburg native. He was at the time president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. And he was hired by Watts as the uh, uh, fourth president of the institution in 1871. So he came here, he brought a couple of women who had been students at Hillsdale, which was co-educational, with him to the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania. And uh, over the course of his presidency, until about 1880, there were uh, 49 women uh, enrolled in the institution. So that was an accomplishment that, uh, that Calder was able to produce. But at the same time, he was a minister he was a doctor of divinity. He did not have much um, acquaintance, if you will, with science whatsoever, with agriculture, and certainly nothing to do with uh, engineering. And so over the course of his administration in particular, uh, now Watts was gone from the scene by 1874, as I say, Penn State pretty much came to resemble Hillsdale College in Michigan, a literary institution. And the problem with that was that it enraged the agricultural constituency here in Pennsylvania. Uh, it created problems with the legislature who wondered what was going on with the school and who investigated it. And so this retrograde motion, this backward drift, created some enemies for the institution beginning in the second half of the 1870s. 
Uh, talk about just who the students were in general. Were, were they people who had grown up on farms who were then being recruited, or were they people who had different interests? Um, a motley crew, probably, yes. The original intent was to recruit farm boys, if you will, smart farm boys. And originally, this is going back to 1855, the hope was that they would be nominated by their county agricultural societies. And that happened to a point, but uh, uh, they came from all over Pennsylvania, and uh, the original class of 11 graduates in 1861 uh, received the first Bachelor of Scientific Agriculture degrees, so-called BSAs, uh, in America. And the hope was that they would go back to the farm and basically through their practice, through their modeling best practices and the best science available, they would help to elevate the rest of the farming community in Pennsylvania. Uh, what happened though was not only at, in Pennsylvania at the uh, agricultural college, but through other agricultural colleges, uh, there were students who, although they may have come from farms, didn't necessarily want to go back to the farms. And this created a lot of problems with agricultural uh, organizations such as the state agricultural societies and especially the Grange in the 1870s. There was a survey of alumni of the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania, by that time named the Pennsylvania State College, of their graduates in 1879, uh, 1880. There were 95 alumni at that time, baccalaureate graduates. Of the 95, 44 of them had graduated with bachelor's uh, degrees in agriculture. Of those 44, only 12 were practicing farmers at the time. The rest of the agricultural graduates had become lawyers, druggists, coal dealers, uh, manufacturers, you name it. So. This pattern prevailed not only in Pennsylvania, but across agricultural colleges uh, in the United States during the 1870s as well. So as, as Frederick Watts was serving as Commissioner of Agriculture in Washington, uh, was he still involved with the school? Uh, yeah, he was. For the first three years, uh, he was still nominally president of the board. But his colleague, Hugh McAllister, also on the board, served as the uh, de facto president because it was very difficult for Watts to come up to Center County to preside at board meetings. But Watts, as commissioner of agriculture, was also a proponent of agricultural colleges during this time. And in fact, what he wanted to do was to make the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture basically uh, the head and the controlling organization, the controlling agency of the research that was produced at agricultural colleges across the United States. The colleges themselves kind of resisted Watts's efforts to uh, become subordinate institutions of the U.S. Department of Agriculture when it came to research. So that was sort of a defeat for Watts, but he was still a proponent of the colleges during his time as commissioner and he was still a proponent of agricultural research stations, the research agenda for the colleges. Well, we've been speaking with Roger Williams. He is the author of Frederick Watts and the Founding of Penn State. Thank you for joining me. I'm delighted to have been here. Thank you so much, Phil. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN. 
the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.